from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. On this episode of Newt's World, I'm really delighted because we have an extraordinarily experienced person to help us with probably the biggest topic that I run into with people these days, and that's the economy in general, but also particularly the fact that we're experiencing the most inflation in a 40-year period. When you go to the grocery store and the price of meat and milk are shockingly high, or you go to the gas station and a fill-up costs a lot more than you thought it would, And then there are all the supply chain issues with, I think, 90 ships still offshore. There are a lot of things that are going on that affect our economy. And to make sense of this current economy, I wanted to really listen to an expert and have you join me in learning from somebody who really knows what they're doing. And I was thrilled when Thomas Honig said he would chat with us. He served as vice chairman of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation from 2012 till 2018. He was president and chief executive officer of the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City and a member of the Federal Reserve System's Federal Open Market Committee from 1991 to 2011. He currently is a distinguished senior fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, which has become a remarkable center for serious intellectual thought about these issues. First of all, let me just say I want to thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be joining you, and I hope I can give some explanations of this, but it is a difficult time and a difficult topic for people at the moment. Let me ask you the most basic of questions, which is how do you describe inflation and what causes it? 
I actually define inflation more broadly than some people because I think it includes asset inflation as well as retail prices and producer prices. So let me go to the retail prices and producer prices. And that is the goods that you and I buy at the grocery store or hardware store or wherever, tickets, they are systematically increasing in price over time. And they are continuing to do that at a high rate. And that's what's going on right now when you have consumer prices going up 6.8% and producer prices going up over 9%. From month to month, we see prices going up. We notice it at the grocery store. So that's the nature of inflation. And then there's the asset inflation, which we have had for actually well over a decade. And that is the price of homes are going up at a breakneck speed right now. The stock market's booming. Other assets are increasing. And that's an asset inflation. And I think Paul Volcker used to say those are cousins, but they do affect our lives, both the asset and the general price inflation that we all are experiencing right now. Let me ask you a distinction for a second. Looking back in history, sometimes you get these really weird price rises. The famous tulip bubble is probably the most commonly referred to that actually aren't inflationary so much as they're just a bubble. There's somehow people get into a frenzy to some extent, I think the housing crisis we got into almost a decade and a half ago had the characteristics of a bubble rather than of inflation. I mean, is that a fair thing to distinguish? And if it is, how do you distinguish whether you're just riding the wave of inflation, which means that it looks like your house is worth more, except actually it's in cheaper dollars. So the actual real value of the house is the same. And those moments when people go crazy and will pay virtually any price for no good reason, thinking that it's going to permanently keep going up. Well, bubbles are, I think, unique from general price rises. I mean, if you have increases in prices in housing and other things for over a decade, you probably have asset inflation. Now, you can get a bubble. You mentioned the tulip mania and then the housing. That's usually also precipitated by a very significant credit expansion. So credit becomes very easy. For some reason, everyone thinks housing can't go wrong, so I'm going to invest, I'm going to speculate in housing, and therefore I do so because I can get the credit, I can get a zero down payment, I can use, in the tulip case, tulips I've already had to borrow more money to get more of something. Those are usually credit-induced bubbles, and they usually collapse when people finally figure out, wait a minute, the value isn't there and we don't have enough, we're extended, we can't make the payments and then everything implodes. And that's what happened in housing and other kinds of mania that have taken place over the centuries. Yeah, it turns out that a tulip's in fact a tulip. Yes. <laughs> not a store of value. Yeah, that's right, it's not a store of value. <laughs> but let me ask you about this whole question of establishing, in effect, easy or cheap money. I mean, hasn't the... Federal Reserve now followed a general policy of what one chairman described as helicopter money when he said that he knew how to avoid a depression. You just fill up helicopters with cash and dump them. They've been doing it through the banks rather than through helicopters. But isn't the level of money that they have poured into the system almost unprecedented? Frankly, think of it in a historical context. I know you're a historian. Think of the Fed's balance sheet, and it is increasing what's called its reserves, banks' reserves, or base money. Between the founding of the Federal Reserve in 1913 to the 2000 
eight period, they increased their total liabilities to about $900 billion. And between 2008 and 2016, those liabilities increased another four and a half trillion. And then in this most recent pandemic, in reaction to that and their monthly injections of 120 billion a month, they've increased it to nearly 9 trillion in liabilities. So that's unprecedented. And that base money is money that is available to the banks to lend. And that has, I think, created a lot of the asset inflation. And remember, in doing that, they've kept their policy rates at zero or near zero for most of that period. And that, of course, when you lower interest rates, you increase asset values. And it has been an unprecedented decade of very accommodative monetary policy all the way to the present. Even as they have outlined their tapering plans, that's still an expansion of policy through March. So it's a very significant increase in the amount of base money. Now, for helicopter money, the Fed has to be part of that. But in this instance, more recently, and I understand well-intentioned, the amount of COVID relief that was put forward was put into the hands of consumers, both middle class and those who lost their jobs and lower middle class. And that's putting spending power in the hands, as you saw with the increase in savings and the increase in spending. And that is, of course, has served to increase demand generally. And from an inflation point of view, increasing demand does put upward pressure on prices of goods, that is the supply of goods. So somewhat complicated answer, but that's the nature of this inflationary beast today. The Fed has been following this policy. I mean, if I understand it correctly, if you're at like 6 or 7% inflation in the consumer price index, and the Fed is basically shoving the money out of zero or one-half percent, you're virtually guaranteed to be able to make money out of it. I mean, the banks are being given this extraordinary opportunity, aren't they, to pile up as much as they can because they're going to pay back at one-half percent what they're going to loan out at seven or eight percent. The answer is yes. It is an extraordinary benefit to the banks because when the Fed buys government securities from the primary dealers, which are mostly banks, not all, but mostly banks, they buy that and they actually create a deposit. They increase their deposits that they hold with the Fed out of basically nothing, right? It's fiat currency. And even if they didn't use that money, but they only get, say, 10 basis points, that's 10 basis points that they have that they didn't actually make a loan for. It's just sitting there and they're earning off it and the Fed's made it possible. And then the question becomes, well, they can make more now if they lend it. And the Fed then has to pay more on reserves to keep them from lending it that would increase demand in the economy and risk making inflation worse. So the whole dynamics become very pro-demand and I think pro-inflation over a long period. Yes. So I'm really puzzled by this, again, because of my own background of having run for office in the 70s. I lost twice and I finally got elected in 78. And I was in the middle of both the Carter inflation and Volcker's relentless efforts to bring it under control, which led to a, a very severe recession in 1982, but which did break the back of the inflation ultimately. Why would the Fed have said for months that the inflation was transitory when historically 
we know that once these things get started, they don't just peter out on their own. I mean, they actually build expectation, which compounds and accelerates the inflation. Wasn't the Fed sort of rejecting every evidence of history about how these cycles work? Well, in a way, they were. I wasn't in those meetings, so I can't say for sure. But the idea, I believe, is that this was a inflationary spurt related to the pandemic that temporarily caused the supply of goods to decrease. And so when you have the same amount of money and fewer goods, you get inflation from that. And once the logistics problems were to be solved, then this would self-correct and they would be able to continue on. And the fact of the matter is, number one, supply was partly logistics, but there was more to it. The logistics are deep. It will take months for that to correct. Number two, prior to that, we've seen our global trade and trade of the United States with other nations come under stress. We've introduced new trade tariffs, this sort of thing that also constrains the supply going forward. So that's more structural. And then thirdly, with the pandemic, I think that we had a situation in which people left the jobs, many of them baby boomers, and they might not have left that soon, but now that they've gone, they're not coming back. So you do have this labor shortage, which then puts pressure on labor prices, which then carry over to consumer prices. So these things were not as transitory as the Fed had thought they might be. On the other side of this, which is, I think, a major part of their responsibility, is that the recovery for the economy following the pandemic started in, let's say, the summer of 2020, at the latest, the fall. And yet, their pandemic policies of increasing, that is, the buying government debt and mortgage-backed securities at the rate of $120 billion per month, a very, very accommodated policy, went on even though the economy was covering, therefore increasing that demand, the ability to have demand in the economy from more money was going on. So you had a temporary but also somewhat permanent strain on supply and a very significant increase in the ability to create demand And then you had the COVID relief packages, which also was spending that created additional demand. You have to get inflation. I don't know that they anticipated that, but they tended to emphasize one side and not the other, the temporary side and not the permanent increases in money creation and the permanent decrease in supply factors. I was very much for, and I advocated, a dramatic increase in money in 2020, because Glisto was the ambassador to the Vatican and we were living in Rome and you could see how badly the pandemic had hit Italy. And I had just assumed that it was going to be substantially worse than people expected back in March of 2020. So I was very much for a short-term sort of jolt of adrenaline with pretty big bailout, but I was also for stopping it which is one of the problems when you get into these cycles, is that once you get used to just passing really big bills, you think, well, oh, let's do a couple more. And it struck me that you had these two parallel, very inflationary fiscal policy pouring money out of the Congress, combined with a very inflationary monetary policy coming out of the Fed. And so you had sort of a double whammy encouraging the larger economy to have pretty massive price rises. I think you're correct. I also was very much supportive of the 
immediate actions taken by both the Congress and by the Fed to address this terrible shock from the pandemic that was going on. And those were going to be stimulative. The difficulty is that when you continue them, as you've just described, well past the start of the recovery, then you are just creating this enormous demand when you still have some significant supply constraints, you are going to get inflation. And to judge that those supply constraints are only temporary, not look at the structural factors that were going on, that's how they got behind the curve. But it has been the Federal Reserve's operating kind of approach when there is a crisis, 2008, or a slowdown, 2014-15, that you stimulate pretty significantly, but then you withdraw it very slowly. And therein lies, I think, the genesis of inflationary impulses that carry through. And now we're seeing it in this environment pretty dramatically so. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now.
really struck with the degree to which the policy of providing financial aid to individuals has led to maybe the toughest job market in terms of trying to hire people since World War II. It's amazing to me how many restaurants, stores, etc., just can't find anybody. It may well be the part of the logistics problem is that older truckers, having gotten off the road for a year, looking around at their financial situation, have said, you know, I just assume not go back to driving. And so they've had, I think, a genuine shrinkage of the skilled employment group. And that's another inflationary pressure in a way, isn't it? Absolutely, it is. I mean, the cost of labor is part of the product and it has to be recovered in the prices. So you pass the labor cost through to the ultimate price. And I do think that the relief packages did allow people to stay home, understandably so. But like I said, for those in the baby boom generation that left, they're saying, well, I was going to retire in such and such period, I'll just do it now. You do have situations where we carry the support for unemployment longer than we had in history because we didn't really end it until this past September. And so people have those savings. They're not anxious to get back in the market. But you do notice that when those benefits ended, we started seeing a pickup in monthly hiring. And that reflects, I think, the fact that, well, I've got to go back to work now. And you'll see that probably continue through, but at a much slower pace because you did have so many drop out of the labor force. And now we have these issues of recurring viruses. People are still afraid, even though there are different debates on that. But I think the recovery in the labor market will be slower than people anticipated as well. And that means more inflationary pressures. One of the reasons I really wanted to do this, and I'm so grateful that you found the time to talk with us, is when I saw that the producer price index had jumped 9.6% over the previous 12 months and had risen eight-tenths of a percent in November alone, first of all, just for all our listeners, can you describe briefly why the producer price index matters and why it's a leading indicator of future consumer price indexes? Well, it's very important because a producer price index is kind of a measure of the cost of production, if you will. The goods that go into the final product that you and I consume, some of the agricultural costs that are in the final goods in the store and so forth. It's like labor, if you will. It's some of that input. And so you watch it very carefully and you see that these costs for certain kinds of energy and input for final goods those are all having an effect on the cost of production. And that's why it's followed so closely, because 9.6 would suggest that we were going to see more inflation, that is in the consumer price inflation, in the months ahead. And so when I saw that number, I became more concerned about the inflationary outlook than I was even before that. Do you think that sense of being aware that this is starting to really drift towards being out of control will penetrate the Federal Reserve team because they clearly have all the data. And this had to be a much bigger jump than they were projecting. Well, I think Chairman Powell, as much as said so yesterday, that this was a bigger jump than they anticipated. That's why they've accelerated their plans to remove this highly accommodative quantitative easing program they've been engaged in for almost two years. 
they've come to recognize it. Now they're walking a very fine, difficult line because if they were to move quickly to try and staunch the inflation, they would very likely, at least history would say, risk a recession. And they don't want to do that, as you mentioned. You don't want to do it in 2022, and you'd like to avoid it beyond that if you can. On the other hand, they also realize that if they don't do something and inflation goes from 6.8% to 7% to 8%, then they're going to create another source of a future recession because that means interest rates are going to have to go up to compensate for this very significant rise of inflation. And if they do that, then they're going to have what I call face the Volcker moment. Do you do these extreme things to get it under control? And then you have a very harsh outcome for that. And so they're walking this fine line. And then add to that the following very significant pressure on them. The federal debt, which was, I'm going to round these numbers off, about $10 trillion in 2008, was about $20 trillion in 2016, and is very close to $30 trillion today. So as interest rates rise, and inflation would precipitate even more of that, then the cost to the federal government of funding this $30 trillion is going to go up significantly, and now you have a new problem. And they're going to be putting a lot of pressure on the Fed not to accelerate interest rates up too quickly. But if they don't move and slow the inflation, then they're going to have a worse problem in the future. So they are in a very difficult situation. When I was Speaker, we passed the only four consecutive balanced budgets in your lifetime. And we had this great moment where Greenspan, who at that time was chair of the Fed, testified in the Senate that the Federal Reserve staff was now studying how they would manage the monetary policy if there was no debt, <laughs> which we didn't quite get to, but it was an exhilarating moment. I'm a big believer in balancing budgets outside of wartime and gradually shrinking the debt. But you raise a point that I think almost nobody looks at, which is if they have a significant rise in interest rates for bonds, the effect that will have on financing the federal debt will crowd out an amazing amount of spending. I'm not sure anybody, conservatives in terms of national defense and liberals in terms of social policy, I don't think anybody's looked at how much we are hostage to a potential catastrophic increase in debt service. And it just strikes me that historically, when you look at other countries that run into these kind of things, this gets to be very, very difficult and very unpopular. It will be very difficult and very unpopular. And remember, there is an argument that is being presented that we're the reserve currency, number one, of the world, and the Fed prints money we can print enough to pay. We'll never default on our debt because we can print it. The problem with that argument is it's true you can print the money, but the value of your currency still goes down and people slowly begin to rely on it less. I think, not to get off the topic, but that's why you get these alternatives like cryptocurrencies proliferating because people are looking for an alternative. And that is, I think, unfortunate. And now to bring this back into equilibrium, I think, Mr. Speaker, you have to remember, we have had an economy developed for nearly a decade with a small rise in interest rates in 2018 and so forth. But over a decade, an economic system that has developed equilibrium around nearly a zero interest rate environment. So think about removing that and moving that up to historically what we'll call a 
real rate of three or 4%, it won't be painless. It won't be easy. It won't be quick. It's going to be a very difficult path if we decide to take that path. And if we don't, then we're going to have, I think, more asset inflation, more price inflation. Well, if I think back to my childhood and you think about what, for example, home mortgages used to cost and also how much more cautious people were about investing capital in new businesses, et cetera. We've been through a period where we've learned, I think, a whole set of really bad habits. And the price of breaking all those habits could become psychologically very challenging and politically very challenging for both parties because people would be suddenly shocked with a level of pain that they just are not used to. The Japanese went through this starting in 89, and they couldn't cope with it. And so they just propped up a bunch of these companies that were dead. They're they essentially zombie companies. And it crippled their economy for over 20 years because they couldn't bring themselves to deal with getting rid of the stuff that no longer worked. That's one of the downsides of having a extended period of zero interest rates, whether it's Japan or the United States. You keep zombie companies still operating, you become less efficient. And if you think about it, over the last decade, until very recently, we had a growth rate that was lower than historic average. We had real wages didn't really increase because our productivity wasn't increasing. Those are the consequences, but they come very slowly. You know, it's not like a shock, so you're not paying attention to it. And then trying to understand it now, given this long period of easy money is very difficult for the consumer and the public, although I don't sell them short. They'll pick it up and understand it fairly quickly and won't be happy about it, I suspect. Right. I mean, because I think the average person, they experience the consequences of it without necessarily understanding the mechanisms. That's correct. And the consequences in the short term, and then we've avoided some of the really long-term consequences of inflation again, of real loss of productivity, and that is something that is the thin line that the Fed has to walk and actually the Congress has to walk going forward from here. And from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. 
Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. You know, historically, there was a real argument about whether the Fed's primary responsibility is to try to maintain economic employment or whether the Fed's primary responsibility is to try to maintain the value of the dollar. And it seems to me that just because of political reality, the bias always ends up being in favor of focusing on employment at the cost of the stability of the dollar's value. I mean, does that strike you that that's a reasonably accurate description? It is. I would describe it slightly different, and that is my own view, and I actually remember Paul Volcker mentioning this several times, that maintaining the value of the dollar, maintaining the purchasing power of the dollar and keeping inflation low, the long-term consequences is better employment. The short-term consequences may be a temporary slowdown in employment, but the long-term is better employment better investment, therefore better productivity, better real wages. But those all come in the long run. And people, when you have a slowdown, want it fixed immediately and put pressure on the Fed to lower those rates, do quantitative easing, take care of the problem, and everything will be fine. And yet you kind of build for the next moment because you're building that equilibrium around that zero rate and keeping it there. And the long-term consequences where I wish the system... and. I understand Congress. I mean, you get elected every two years, you have to deal with that. But the Fed was supposed to be independent and therefore be able to think long term. And as a Swiss central banker once told me many years ago that the central bank's job is to take a look at the long run so the short run can take care of itself. And we shouldn't forget that. (laughs) It was really interesting. When we were going through this in 81, part of what they had to do was break what had become a fever of wage increases. And I'd been endorsed by the professional air traffic controllers, and they had a contract coming up. And they had designed a very, very aggressive strategy around the assumption that Jimmy Carter would get reelected. And it was very clear once Reagan got elected that they had a guy who had himself been a union president. He had led a strike. He understood a great deal about what he was doing. And they were just running into a collision. And I met with their senior leaders, and they said, guys, you know, you really have to rethink this because this is not Jimmy Carter. So I happened to go down to the White House for some meeting, and I was talking with Drew Lewis, who was Secretary of Transportation at the time, and I said, do we really have to take on the only union that endorsed me? (laughs) And he said, let me pose a simple question to you. He said, we have 19,000 air traffic controllers whose contract is coming up in June, and they've said if we don't do what they want, they're going to strike. 
we have 635,000 postal employees and their contractors coming up in August. Now, we have to stop the spiral of inflation at one of those two points. Which one do you want to recommend to President Reagan that we tackle? I went immediately back and called the guys at PATCO and I said, this is a matter of long-term national strategy. They will never give in. And, of course, they were so locked into the emotions of it, they couldn't get out of it. But I've never forgotten that they had sat down with Volcker. They had designed a clear strategy. They were going to break the fever of pay-raise-driven inflation. And they were going to break the fever of a fiscal policy in the Congress, and they were going to move towards, this is really where the supply side, demand side thing starts with, they were going to try to increase supply to mop up the inflation rather than shrinking the inflation down to the level of current capabilities. And I remember the second phase of that was about, I guess, mid-September of 82. I was deeply involved in campaigns around the country. I knew we were just going to get killed because people didn't care that this was Jimmy Carter's inflation. By 82, it had become Reagan's recession. <laughs> and I called the Secretary of the Treasury at the time, former head of Merrill Lynch, and said, you know, if in fact at some point you guys are going to lower the interest rates, is there any way to do it before the election? And he said, Newt, we're not even going to have that discussion. I said, all right, well, we're going to take a bloodbath, but, you know, we lost 29 seats. Very painful. But... We did break the back of the inflation, and by 1984, Reagan could campaign on Morning in America and launched really what was about a 30-year cycle of investment and growth and jobs, and then the system once again. The long run matters. People talk about the dollar, and it's a fiat currency, and I keep saying yes. So what makes it valuable to the rest of the world? It's because we have one of the strongest economies historically, and even now compared to the rest of the world. We are an industrial might. We have a strong financial system. We have a rule of law. Those are the things that keep the dollar strong. But if you give that up, if you weaken that for the short term, then the long term will be someone else's. And you can't forget that. And it's a very hard sell, though, in the heat of the moment. Listen, let me ask you one last giant question that we will not hold you to, although we are putting you on tape. If you had to guess... What do you think this cycle of breaking the inflation, how far out do you think it goes before we are able to actually break it? Well, it's a guesstimate because I don't know what the Federal Reserve is going to do for sure. And here's what gives me some pause. They said they were going to do three rate increases, at least that was the chart, three rate increases, a quarter point each at 75 basis points. Right now, real interest rates are quite negative, <laughs> like 4% negative. So if that's the pace, then I think we'll have inflation well beyond 2023, unless supplies just suddenly begin to flow in and trade problems end, then I think we're looking well past 2023. If they were to not only accelerate the tapering, but actually the interest rates, if they had a slowdown, it would be mild. They'd have to be careful of that. Then you could perhaps get inflation back in the contain in 23, 24, but it depends on what choices they make and the amount of pressure that they feel as this inflationary period continues on. So I'm thinking two years is the best we can get, maybe longer, depending on what choices the Federal Open Market Committee makes. I really want to thank you, and I hope you have a good, if inflationary, holiday. <laughs> 
And I really appreciate your taking the time to educate me and our listeners on a topic that's going to be a major topic for the next few years. And I think this is a really helpful conversation. I want to thank you. Well, you're very welcome. I hope it was helpful at least because like you say, it affects every person's life going forward. Thank you to my guest, Thomas Honig. You can read more about the Fed meetings, inflation, and supply chain issues on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newtsworld is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. So, should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander, or we could do something in between like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So, Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly how much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyond zero.